The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 142nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on this episode, we are bringing you a location that is in Birmingham, Alabama. I don't believe we've ever been to Birmingham. We have not. I've been looking at it as I plan road trips and trying to figure out how to get through it, though. This is Sloss Furnaces, and it was suggested by listeners Lisa Atkinson and Megan Parks. Got a very fascinating history. And of course, if it's on this show, it's got some ghosts to go with it. Pretty creepy location. Can't imagine walking around this place at night. Before we get into that, we'd love to have you check out our website, historygoesbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Denise, we have a couple of corrections to make in regards to our last episode, which featured Waitomo Caves. Number one is Denise and I are not soccer or rugby fans. (laughs) So, Denise, when I looked at the video that featured the All Blacks team performing the haka. What, the soccer team? I saw what looked like soccer uniforms to me, so I assumed it was a soccer team. It's actually their rugby team. And believe me, I heard it from several people that I got it wrong. So I do apologize. The All Blacks is the rugby team. Apparently, the soccer team is the All Whites. Oh, okay. So so we, we stand corrected, and we do apologize to all you rugby players. And we did watch women's rugby for the first time in the Olympics the other night, and I wouldn't mess with any of those women. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The New Zealand team, they look pretty ferocious. <laughs> the Kiwi girls, we'll say, against the Aussies. That, that was who they were playing, wasn't it? I'm not sure. I just know for sure that the one was New Zealand. So. Or maybe that's going to, that might be the gold medal round. I'm not sure who they were playing, but I know it was definitely the Kiwi women. From Aotearoa. That's actually New Zealand. Gotcha. The other thing is, you had said that you didn't think that women could do the Kamate Haka. I did say that. Well, we heard from our, she calls herself our most avid Kiwi listener. Oh, perfect. Alana, down there in New Zealand, wrote us about this to let you know that indeed women can do the Kamate Haka. 
That is really exciting because I love the haka. She said, I had the pleasure of listening to your most recent podcast, 141. And since I'm of Maori descent, I thought I would give you guys some background, particularly on the haka you shared, Kamate. You mentioned on the podcast that Kamate could not be performed by Maori women. However, it can. The lyrics are below, but the backstory that I grew up with is as follows. A Maori chief named Te Rapara was being pursued by his enemies. He came to another chief named Te Werangi and asked for his help and protection. Te Warangi agreed and hit him in a kumara pit with his wife sitting on the entrance. Because of the customs at the time, this was pretty strange for a couple of reasons. Number one, at the time, custom would have stated that no male should ever place himself in a position beneath the genitals of a woman. That's where we were talking about the flower. Yes. Number two, the female organs were believed to have a shielding effect, which, if I interpreted it correctly, either of these seemed to be the reason briefly stated as to why women couldn't perform this haka. And I believe that was the point we were making. Of course, in order to survive, Te Rapara was willing to forego these customs. He muttered, Kamate, Kamate, which means I die, I die, as his enemies came closer. But Te Rarangi told him he had fled another direction. And as he heard them leave, Te Rapara whispered, Kaora, Kora, I live, I live. This happened once again as the pursuers didn't believe Te Rarangi. But after he convinced them Te Rapara had in fact run away, he came out of the pit into the sunshine and exclaimed, Kora, Kora, Tene te gata, pahura, hura, nana, ne, aitiki, mai, wakawiti te ra. I live, I live. This is the hairy man who has fetched the sun and caused it to shine again. The hairy man was, of course, te rarenge, who was an exceptionally hairy man, according to the tales. This is how Kamate was effectively birthed. This haka can be performed by both males and females, although in the media we see mostly men performing this, such as the New Zealand rugby team, the All Blacks. So it's a common misconception that women can't perform it. An example of women performing the kamate is at the funeral of Dame Te... Oh my gosh, this is a heck of a name. Aterangi Kahu, the Maori queen, and I know I probably butchered that, in August 2015. Mount Tapiri was alive with many men and women performing all sorts of haka, including Kamate, to pay homage and respects to her on her burial day. There are many haka that have been written for only men or only women to perform. However, there are no rules stipulating that the Kamate haka can't be performed by both sexes. The main rule during any performance is that women are not to stick their tongues out in a pukana, but rather open their eyes very wide and make a grimacing, intimidating face. Additionally, women are not to slap their legs or arms as roughly as we see the men doing so. Again, we should lightly tap our legs or forearms doing a similar action as the men, but not as forceful. I hope that this is helpful to you guys in giving you more of an understanding about the Maori heritage and culture. And I also would like to say thank you so much for featuring New Zealand on your podcast this week, as well as for mentioning my culture and heritage. It's such a treat to hear my little country and beloved culture mentioned in one of my favorite podcasts, and I hope I get to hear it again. And I just want to say thank you for the enlightenment, because we were always told that we were kind of being bad by, or not bad, but that it was kind of forbidden for us to learn it when we were taught it. But we did get taught, like, smacking ourselves pretty hard, just like the guys, but it was a taekwondo camp. So so thank you for sharing all that. I just love the culture. It fascinates me. We want to thank Mel Solis for your wonderful comments over at Instagram, and we are happy to feed your obsession. Cricket asked on the fan page why the intro music was so comforting. And I said, it's to lull you before we get you. Oh, so we're like black widows? <laughs> Actually, we hear from a lot of people that they think it's creepy. So it makes us wonder about you, Cricket, if you think it's comforting. And then Lance heard about us from Bizarre States, but he said, sadly, he was only 12 episodes in. And I told him, don't be sad. Most people are sad after they've binged and they're out of show. So he should be happy he's only 12 in. Yep, but welcome. 
We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Erica with a K. Hello, Erica with a K. Andres. Hey, Andres. Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Raymond. Hey, Raymond. And Jess. Hey, Jess. Denise, are you ready to go to Sloss Furnaces? I most certainly am. Let's do it. All right. History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. This Moment in Oddity is by Bob Sherfield. For many people, the Carpathian Mountains, located in the Transylvania region of Romania, are famous solely as being the home of Count Dracula. Now, however, they have a new tourist attraction. A Romanian couple has spent two years constructing an eco-friendly fairy tale castle in the mountains of Transylvania using only natural materials. Razvan and Gabriela Vasil, who have been living in Bucharest, sold their home to build the castle in a small village just over 20 miles from the city of Sibiu. The property, which they have called the Clay Castle of the Valley of Fairies, is made of 100% organic clay, straw and sand, with all wooden pillars and not a lick of modern paint or varnish. The building appears to be straight out of Middle Earth and looks nothing like a castle with its whitewashed walls and steeply pitched shingle roofs, which reach almost to the ground. The owner's plan is to open Clay Castle as a hotel. It is already a tourist attraction in its own right, and one couple even hosted their wedding reception there. Their enthusiasm for ecology also extends to heating the property, as the tin rooms will be kept warm in the harsh winter months with traditional wood-burning fires. The owners haven't yet explained how they'll keep the rooms cool in the summer. Warm or cold, the fairy-like clay castle certainly is odd. Are you afraid of the dark? That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> this Day in History This Day in History is by Kristen Swintek. On this day, August 12th, in 1960, Echo 1, NASA's first communication satellite, is launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida. The satellite, measured 100 feet or 30.5 meters in diameter, was designed by the Space Vehicle Group of the NASA Langley Research Center and was constructed by General Mills of Minneapolis, Minnesota. A communication satellite's function is simple, send data into space and beam it back down to Earth. To accomplish this, Echo 1 essentially worked as a giant 10-story tall mirror that a signal could bounce off of easily. 
It was the first satellite to facilitate two-way live communication. President Eisenhower delivered the first live voice communication via the satellite. In the radio message, he said, quote, This is one more significant step in the United States program of space research and exploration being carried forward for peaceful purposes. The satellite balloon, which has reflected these words, may be used freely by any nation for similar experiments in its own interest. End quote. The Echo 1 was involved in many firsts, including the first coast-to-coast telephone call using a satellite and the first image transmitted via satellite, which was a portrait of President Eisenhower. To communicate with the Echo 1, Bell Labs created a 50-foot antenna. While calibrating the antenna, radio astronomers Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson detected cosmic microwave background radiation, which was the first solid evidence of the Big Bang. Penzias and Wilson later won the Nobel Prize for this discovery. Even though the satellite was incredibly durable, surviving a meteor shower, it was still susceptible to sunlight. The sunlight was strong enough to move the satellite around, pushing it back into the Earth's atmosphere. On May 24, 1968, Echo 1 burned up on re-entry. History Goes Bump Podcast. Birmingham, Alabama is one of the more well-known southern cities. Sloss Furnaces is a popular spot for music and art in Birmingham today. Many may not realize that this imposing historic landmark has a key role in the founding and growth of this famous southern city. For 90 years, Sloss Furnaces produced iron. It is the only blast furnace in America to have been preserved and restored. Something else has been preserved from the past. There are rumors of spirits here, and not just the ones that come out every Halloween when Sloss hosts Sloss Fright Furnace. Ghosts seem to lurk in the old buildings. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Sloss Furnaces. The Industrial Revolution began in Britain in the 1700s. It was a time when handmade products moved to factory production by machines. This was the beginning of innovation. Coal and iron ore were a central piece of industrialization. As the Industrial Revolution took off, so did iron production. The Industrial Revolution took a foothold in America during the War of 1812, when an embargo was set that would prevent exports from and imports to America. In 1825, a new Iron Age began. The construction of bridges, railways, ships, and even items such as window frames fueled this new era. Iron was made by smelting iron ore, which was heating it up to its melting point, and then casting it into ingots called pigs. The result was called pig iron. This pig iron could be melted and poured into molds to make a variety of things. Coal was turned into coke to use for smelting, which prevented the iron from becoming brittle. There were two kinds of iron made, cast iron and wrought iron. And a fun fact is that iron is the fourth most common metal in the Earth's crust. Oh, wow. Coal, limestone, and iron ore were beneath Birmingham, Alabama, so it was natural for it to become an industrial center. Birmingham is the only place in the world where these three elements are found together in these amounts. The city is located at the crossing of two major railway lines, the Alabama and Chattanooga Railway, and North and South Alabama Railway, in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. 
The city grew so quickly at its beginnings that it was dubbed the Magic City. But the city is known for more than just its industrial production. It really was the cradle of the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr.'s brother was a pastor in the city, and events like the Freedom Riders being attacked on a bus there by the KKK in 1961, demonstrations in 1963 led by King, and the bombing of a church that killed four schoolgirls solidified Birmingham's place in civil rights history. Bull Connor added to this with his actions to enforce racial segregation as Birmingham's Commissioner of Public Safety. Those actions became known internationally and they helped push forward the Civil Rights Act of 1964. What were some of those actions? The use of attack dogs and fire hoses on peaceful protesters. I think everybody's seen videos of that, and we probably have some listeners who may have experienced that as well. Can't imagine getting hit full force with a fire hose. Birmingham was founded in 1871 by the Ellington Land Company. The shareholders of this company were the founders of Birmingham and included Southern entrepreneurs. Colonel James Wither Sloss was one of those men. Sloss was born in 1844 to Joseph and Clarissa Sloss in Mooresville, Alabama. He was not well educated and decided to apprentice as a bookkeeper at a butcher shop. In 1842, he opened a general store. He married Mary Bigger at that time as well. The couple bought land and started their own plantation, which they continued to expand through the years and eventually Sloss became a rich man. The colonel part of his name comes from his service in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. He became president of the Nashville and Decatur Railroad after the war in 1867. He later joined as a shareholder with Ellington Land Company. He convinced the L&N Railroad to bring the North and South Alabama Railway through the city. He then helped found the Pratt Coke and Coal Company. Sloss founded the Sloss Furnace Company in 1881 and began building the city furnace that would eventually take his name and become the Sloss Furnaces. The Ellington Land Company donated 50 acres to Sloss's company to build the city furnace. A European engineer named Harry Hargreaves had studied under British inventor Thomas Whitwell and he was put in charge of the design and construction of the furnaces. The furnaces were equipped with Whitwell stoves that were 60 feet high and 18 feet in diameter. There were also 10 boilers and two blowing engines, all of which were manufactured in the South. In April 1882, the furnaces went into blast. In the first year of production, the furnace sold 24,000 tons of iron. Louisville hosted an exposition in 1883, and the Sloss Furnace Company won a bronze medal for the best pig iron. 24,000 tons of iron. That's a lot of iron. Yes, it is. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Sloss would remain with the company for only four years and then retire. Before he retired, the Birmingham Press declared the following about Sloss, quote, his excellent business qualifications, brilliant intellect, splendid character, and fine executive ability all combined make him the grandest man in Alabama today for our chief executive. So they were trying to get him to become governor. He is the very personification of Christian manhood and integrity, possessing the qualifications of head and heart, which we should emulate. 
end quote. Can you imagine a newspaper nowadays? <laughs> the way they talk about uh, people running for any office now, they definitely don't do that. No, they don't. And I don't think we have very many people running for office that you could say have brilliant intellect and are qualified and splendid characters and such. The Sloss Furnace Company was sold to John Johnston and Joseph Johnston, and they were not related, who expanded it and renamed it Sloss Sheffield Steel and Iron Company. Even though it had that name, no steel was produced here, so we're not sure exactly why they called it the Steel and Iron Company. After the expansion, Sloss became the second largest merchant pig iron company in Birmingham, and by World War I, they were one of the largest producers in all the world. The company owned 120,000 acres of coal and ore land, 1,500 beehive coke ovens, five Jefferson County coal mines, and two red ore mines, brown ore mines, and quarries in North Birmingham. And another fun fact is by 1941, when America entered the war, nearly half the labor force was employed by the iron and steel and mining industries, and more than two-thirds of the industry's workers were African-American. Despite the large amount of black workers, Sloss was a segregated workplace. The company was also set up in tiers with only whites in the positions of management, accountants, chemists, and engineers at the top, and all the black labor gangs were at the bottom. Working at Sloss Furnaces was tough. Men could barely see in front of them because of the dark conditions created by the smelting process. The heat from those processes would reach well over 100 degrees. The work was labor-intensive as men shoveled coal as quickly as they could to fuel the furnaces. Most workers were immigrants with few other options to feed their families. Makeshift barracks were all they had to sleep in, and there were no labor laws in place or unions to protect them. And then there was James Slag Wormwood, who was a foreman at Sloss Furnaces. He was in charge of nearly 150 men, and he was not a benevolent boss. Slag would let them have very little sleep before he was banging on the walls and ordering them back to work in conditions that were not only unbearable, but unsafe. Slag was the type of guy who was not only a jerk, but he liked to impress his colleagues. One of the ways he accomplished that was by forcing his workers to perform dangerous tasks just because he could. The result was the death of 47 men under his watch. That's not bragging rights. No, that's like stupidity, you're the biggest jerk I've ever met, rights. It just blows your mind because nowadays, I think most companies in their back offices have signs that talk about how many days without an accident. So you're looking at this going, this isn't just accidents. 47 men died. Because of things he asked them to do that weren't safe. That number was 10 times more than any other shift in the history of Sloss. Can you imagine? It makes you wonder why somebody didn't kind of say, um, yo, sir, get over here, Mr. Slag, let's have a chat. Uh, apparently the workers didn't cross them and the upper management didn't cross them either, I guess. Because it doesn't behoove you not to have workers. You need their bodies, so they're not doing you any good dead. Slag left his workers hungry and tired. One would not blame those workers for wanting to end their hell on earth. And some think they did. Good for them. One day, old Slag lost his footing at the top of the highest furnace and fell to his death. Was Slag just clumsy that day? Perhaps overcome by methane gas? Probably not. Slag never climbed to the highest furnace. In all his time at Sloss, he had never climbed up there. 
The likely scenario is that the workers revolted, grabbed Slag, and dragged him to the uppermost heights, and then threw him over to his death. The Sloss Furnaces that we see today has no original part of the first furnace complex still standing. During the early 1930s, the complex was mechanized and the furnaces were rebuilt, doubling the production of the facility. The oldest building dates back to 1902, and there are 40 buildings here. The blower engines date to 1902, and the steam boilers are from 1906 and 1914. Two slag granulators were installed in the 1940s, and by the 1950s, the blower engines were replaced with turbo blowers. The site closed for production in 1970. In 1977, Birmingham voters approved a bond to help stabilize the historic structures. In 1981, Sloss Furnaces was named a National Historic Landmark. Today it serves as a concert venue, a festival location, has an innovative metal arts program, and is a museum. Tours are available. Sloss Fright Furnace opens for Halloween and offers some cool chills in a very creepy location. But it's not just the old buildings and smokestacks that give this location its creepy vibe. There really seems to be something haunting Sloss Furnaces, and it's no wonder with all the deaths that occurred here, the unbearable conditions, and that horrible work boss Slag and his mysterious and horrible death. It wasn't long after Slag's little mishap that strange things started happening. Accidents became rampant, and there were so many on the graveyard shift that the company decided to no longer have that shift. One worker had a shirt get caught in a large flywheel, and he was pulled into the gear and killed. Oh, can't even think of a worse way. Many blame Slag for most of the paranormal activity. People claim to feel an evil presence and have even seen a shadowy figure that has been described as demonic in appearance. As Slag's legend has grown, so have the reports of supernatural happenings. A night watchman was quite shaken one evening while he was walking the grounds. He was violently shoved from behind, and when he spun around to see who had attacked him, he saw no one. Then he heard a disembodied voice scream, Get back to work. The watchman was lucky that he was only pushed. Another man claimed that he saw this shadowy presence that was the most evil thing he had ever seen, and he described it looking like a demon. I mean, I don't think anybody really knows what a demon looks like, but it was what he thought it would look like. Before he could react or run, he felt fists hitting his body. The attack was quick, but the effects were a bit more lasting. The man lifted his shirt and found burn marks where the punches had connected with his body. That workman never worked at Sloss again. Can you imagine? I've heard of people being scratched or bitten, but burn marks because you were being punched? So these aren't even bruises. It's that you're being burned by it, which would indicate to me that whatever the spirit is, you know, we had this slag probably fell into one of these things that had the molten iron in it. Is it heat carrying over from that? Yeah, that I'm not sure because I I know sometimes there's been like bruises or in the shape of hands or where somebody's been pushed. And so I don't know if it's that same kind of phenomenon or like you said, if that's something from the actual furnaces. I can't even imagine how terrifying that would be. It's bad enough if something touches you, but it's coming at you and starts punching you. Yeah, I would have never gone back either. Other people claim to hear audible voices yelling at them to push some steel or pick up their pace. Are these the residual orders of Slag or some other boss? Apparently, they occur most times during the shift that Slag would have managed. 
So that makes you think it would be him. And that it would be more of a residual because if he's intelligent when he's yelling those things or whoever this is or whatever it is, I wouldn't think that they would be yelling something that would be in regards to work because there's no work going on here. Right. So that seems more residual, but the punching and everything, that's definitely intelligent because it's interacting with you. And I don't know that this thing is necessarily slag. I've heard people say if somebody's a jerk in life, they'll be a jerk in death. But I don't think you could take on being demonic or evil necessarily in your presence. So I'm wondering if there's something else there too. Well, but and he was so nasty in life. Who's to say he didn't have something evil already connected to him then? That's a good point. He could have had something maybe possessing him or what have you. You could see why he'd be angry if he thinks they murdered him and he already obviously hated these men. One of the other ghosts here is the spirit of Theophilus Calvin Jowers. He had worked at another furnace, Oxmoor Furnace, starting in 1873. By 1889, he was the assistant foundryman there. One of his jobs was to change the bells on the furnace, and on this particular day, he was trying to change the bell on the Alice Furnace. He was walking around the edge of the furnace using a block and tackle when he lost his footing. He and the bell fell into the molten iron. Workers ran to his aid, but not much was left of him. The Birmingham Age reported, quote, A piece of sheet iron was attached to a length of gas pipe, and with that instrument, his head, bowels, two hip bones, and a few ashes were fished out, end quote. Jower's apparition was seen soon after near the furnace. It was not unusual to see his spirit in places too hot for humans. The Alice furnace was torn down in 1905, so Jower's spirit moved on to another furnace at Oxmoor. When that one was taken apart, he decided to relocate to Sloss Furnaces for some reason. Jower's son John claimed that he saw his father's spirit walking through the hot furnace there one day. Yeah, my question was going to be, how do they know that it's this Jower's person, but his son apparently has identified him? And it would have been quite a while ago because he died back in the 1800s. Just weird (laughs) that a spirit would relocate itself to another furnace it's like that's where he was comfortable so he saw another one that was still up and running and he goes okay i'll go over there yeah or maybe there's something about the energy of a furnace that helped him manifest who knows we had one of the members of our spectacular crew i think it's i think it's david had asked if anybody had heard of ghosts that have haunted multiple locations several people including myself had pointed out Some of the famous ghosts out there seem to haunt more than one, like Marilyn Monroe and Elvis. And then it also was pointed out that we have the Lady in White, who seems to haunt a whole lot of locations. I don't necessarily think that the Lady in White is always the same Lady in White. I think they're all different Ladies in White, which is just a fascinating phenomenon. But this Jowers, apparently, you could say that he haunted more than one location because he would have been over at this Alice Furnace at the Oxmoor. And now he's at Sloss Furnaces. So there's two locations that he has haunted one of which I don't think he had any personal connection to when he was living. You know, it would be easy to explain this all away as overactive imaginations, if not for the fact that the Birmingham Police Department has reports of over 100 times that they've been called out to the property. And those are just reports that they have recorded, that people have called them and reported. So there's been a lot of activity there, and a lot of people have experienced activity there. These reports detail unexplained activity, Sloss Furnaces has been featured on Ghost Hunters and Ghost Adventures. So 
Uh, I don't know that I've seen either one of those episodes, so I'm not sure if they caught anything, but it's obviously famous enough location that they wanted to check it out. I had actually never heard of it. So thank you, Lisa and Megan, for suggesting it. Yeah, I'd never heard of it either. And as I've been researching, because I knew I wanted to stop in Birmingham, so now I have something I definitely want to stop and see. Well, and this is really popular, I guess, for those festivals and concerts and such. So, Working at the furnaces was dangerous and evoked many emotions from fear to dread to anger. Have these emotions marked this location permanently? Do evil entities feed off of this energy? Is one of those evil spirits that of the four-man slag? Is Sloss Furnaces haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, people are experiencing something. Our next location for our next episode, we're going back to Salem, Massachusetts, Denise. Back up to Mass. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Salem is one of our favorite cities. And we're going to be joined on that episode by Salem tour guide Amanda Prouty. So looking forward to having her share about the Witch House of Salem. This is a location you and I have at least been on the outside of. We haven't been inside of it, but we have been on the outside of it. Right. It's always fun when we actually get to see or we have a visual of something we've seen in person instead of just pictures when we're doing a podcast. So that's really cool. Exactly. And you guys got to hear a little bit from Amanda on our Bryce House episode. And for those of you who are executive producers, she also shared about the Gardner Pingree House and the murder of Captain White. That was very fascinating as well. We do have some iTunes reviews to share with you guys. First up is five stars from Babstein or Babstein. I can't get enough. This is one of my favorite podcasts and it makes my workday fly by. As a huge fan of ghost tours, I'm delighted to hear stories from places I haven't had the opportunity to visit. The lovely hosts present the content in a fun, upbeat, and casual style, which never fails to brighten my mood. It's clear that they truly enjoy creating the podcast and I truly enjoy listening. I hope they keep it up for years to come. Well, we certainly do. We have years and years and years worth of material. So uh, we're not going anywhere for what, the next 20 years at least, Denise? Exactly. Till our teeth fall out, we start chatting like this. <laughs> My teeth have already started falling out. Okay, well. <laughs> so that won't be long. That gives us like, what, another two years? <laughs> <laughs> then we have RJ Buck 72, five stars, perfect blend. I've been listening to this one for a couple of months now and due to a two-hour commute each way. Oh, my God. I've been blowing through most of the episodes. This podcast strikes an excellent balance between the historical background of each location or event and the current day claims of the paranormal. Fun hosts, a healthy skepticism, and very informative. Well, thank you, RJ. And Amanda, 575, five stars. History repeats itself in the afterlife. My husband has pretty much sold this show to me, and now I can add to the dinner conversation. Very fun show and insightful. Stay spooky, ladies. And I have a feeling that Amanda is Matt's wife. I think you're absolutely right. We want to thank you guys for tuning in for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Mark Shoemaker and Raymond Mendoza. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.